0: It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode is dedicated in memory. Of Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda ben Yechiel, a great Talmud Chacham, who was also a a listener of Jewish history soundbites, and may his memory be a blessing. Um, tonight's episode is going to be a little bit about the world, and ideas, and activities of Rabbi Hirsch Matthius uh, Kalischer, who has uh, preceded all the all the um uh, later ideas of Zionism and religious Zionism, he was way before everyone and we touched on him a little bit in the uh, over a year ago in the Zionist and the Rabbis series, but in honor of his upcoming yard site this week, so I wanted to just touch on him a little bit more in depth about him and the world that he operated in, just so we understand a little bit more of the uh, context and how his ideas and activities came about. Tverish Kalischer grew up in the town of Lisa, Lisa, Lishna, depends on what language it is, and which is in Poland, and he's a student of the the rabbi of Lisa at the time, Lisa at the time, Reb Yaakov Leiberbeim the as famous as the author of the Nesivis Amishpa, the Chavas Das, and many other Sepharim, one of the great uh, Achroinim of his day. And so he, he studied by him. Um, and also later on, by the nearby, nearby much larger town, much larger city, uh, the city of Pozen, Poznan in Polish, who the rabbi there was Rabbi Eger. And, and uh, Rebbe Tzvir learned and studied by Rabbi Kiveh as well. So just, just to give a little bit of a, of a, of a, that, that geographical area and that time period. Sirius Kalasha lived from 1795 to 1874. So you're talking about, uh, you know, well over 200 years ago, uh, he, and, uh, when he was born. And it's at the time of the third partition of Poland. 1795, the year he's born, is the third partition of the old Polish kingdom. And essentially the Polish kingdom ceases to exist. Now, when we talk about the partitions, the what more it's more famous is that the lion's share goes to the Russian Empire, goes, falls under Tsarist Russia, the whole entire eastern areas. And also that the South south eastern and western areas the southern sections of the of the polish former polish kingdom go to Gal- which is galicia that old area they go to the austro-hungarian empire what's less famous is the northwestern section of the former polish kingdom which gets swallowed up by prussia later in the 19th century it becomes germany but at that time it's prussia and this is that's this area. That's important to understand his story. Um, the whole area of Posen, Poznan, where Bikiv Eger was the rabbi, Liso, where Rabbi Yaakov Leberbain was the rabbi, and later on Turin, which is the city where Rabbi Tzirish himself lived and was the rabbi for decades, lived for the rest of his life. That's all in this area. It's the Prussian part of what was Poland. So it's Eastern Europe, it is Poland. On the other hand, it's it been subsumed into Germany, and this has an influence on the area, it has an influence on the Jewish community and the development of Jewish life, and it has an influence on Rotirius Kalischer's life and activities because of the people he interacts with and tries to influence uh, with his ideas of, um, of, uh, of, uh, of settling the land. So he um, becomes, and that's the theater of of his operations for his entire life. He never lives anywhere else. Uh, He becomes the rabbi in Torun, which is in that area, like I said. And today it's in Poland, um, western Poland. And he is the rabbi there for decades, and he never takes a salary. He doesn't believe that a rabbi should be taking a salary for his position. And he and his wife had a small store, and he lived in poverty. He not, did not want to receive public funds. And similar to his teachers, the nasivists and Rebbe Kiva Eger, he was a fighter for tradition. And he, again, this is in Prussia, this is during the time of, of uh, changes in the Jewish community. It's the beginning of emancipation, um, it's the Napoleonic era, the post-Napoleonic era, This is the time when Reform Judaism is on the rise in Germany and its reverberations are felt throughout the area as far as Prussia as well. And he becomes a fighter for tradition and battles the Reformist elements which were prevalent at the time in the German areas of Poland. And he writes many Halachic works and Talmudic works. and and In other words, he's in many ways a, a very a Polish rabbi living in the German part of Poland at the time uh, a traditionalist in many ways and uh, and 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 that's and that's the the context of how, of his own life where eventually he becomes he has some not quite novel ideas uh, it's actually ironic his grandson a fellow by the name of Solomon Kalisher was reformed. he was a professor a scientist of some sort he was also supportive of Israel which was you know is, uh, also a novelty for reform in that time but um but he was I guess under his grandfather's influence but he was he himself was reform so his grandfather battled reform and he uh, became reform anyways so we have to we have to explore a few different areas of of what was going on in the world and what influenced uh, sirius koher to go ahead with these really revolutionary ideas of Coming to settle the land, and that's the idea of, of of geula of the redemption of the beginning of the messianic era. So the first thing that, that we have to mention is that is that uh, it became practical in his days. In other words, he believed it was more practical to purchase land in Eretz Yisrael at the time, is the 1830s, because Muhammad Ali of Egypt was now nominally in charge of Israel, and it was not directly under the Ottoman Empire. He was a rebel. Uh, Muhammad Ali and he and the the Ottoman Empire for a period, you know, a significant period of time during that era, during that period, time period was not directly in charge, and he felt that to influence a small-time rebel ruler to be able to sell portions of land to to purchasers, to Jewish people who wanted to purchase the land, would be. More feasible, a more feasible operation than appealing to the great Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. And it would be easier to deal with Muhammad Ali. And this is something that he spoke about and wrote about in his letters to all the people he was trying to influence that now is an opportune time that we can go ahead with the program. Another very important aspect of it is because the focus when one, uh, When, when he hears about Rutsvihirish Kalasher and when he's used in modern day discourse, it's, the focus is primarily on his messianic ideas and the fact that Ka'ula has to be done in the first stage through man-made activity and settling the land and cultivating the land. But the general context of, of the time was that of rising the idea, the, the, what was gaining, an idea that was gaining popularity of nationalism. In the 1820s, Greece gets independence from the Ottoman Empire. That's basically a decade-long conflict, and it was a seminal event in modern history. Uh, Why? Because, number one, it was the beginning of the end of the Ottoman Empire. Um, Many other uh, countries, especially in the Balkans, um, Romania and the Balkans and the, and other parts of Southern Europe, the European possessions, especially of the Ottoman Empire, begin a ne- rise in nationalism of ethnic identity, of self-determination. And, and, and the empire begins a long, century-long process of falling apart and crumbling, which would eventually end with World War I. That's number 1. So the Ottoman Empire coming to the beginning of the end that's a very significant event. But more importantly, it the Greece becomes the first at least European nation, possibly any um at the time to utilize the new idea of nationalism, of self-determination to gain an independence from a world empire. Um, and, and, and to define themselves as, as someone who has the right to have that, have that nationalist uh, ideal and willing to fight for it. And this inspired many other countries and peoples. And this goes into the whole 18th century. And again, it culminates with World War I and even follows to the interwar and then the post World War II time period when the British Empire finally falls apart. But, um, it becomes a century long Process and and the the Polish Revolt of 1831 was influ- was inspired by, by um, the uh, the Greek uh, independence and many other countries went on to revolt against the various different empires that they were under and this idea of nationalism was in the air and that greatly influenced the Jewish so it wasn't just the age old idea of messianism it was also the modern idea of nationalism, and it's something that he directly referred to in his writings, and uh, we'll, we'll hopefully return to that uh, soon. Another point is that emancipation. Emancipation of the Jews in Western Europe was a process that was happening during the 1820s, 30s, 40s, 50s, during his lifetime. And there's all of a sudden there are Jews that are in positions of power, who are politically connected, who are in the banking world, who are lawyers, who are wealthy, um, Adolf Cremieux, Cremier, I was uh, challenged to pronounce the French names, and Edmund de Rothschild, and other Rothschilds, Moses Montefiore, and emancipation meant, according to the thinking of Rotzirisch Kalsher, that we are at the dawn of the Messianic era, because we're being emancipated now, so we can become part of the the nations of the world, so that we can define ourselves as a nation as well which wasn't possible before emancipation. So he saw it as the dawn of the Messianic era, specifically because of emancipation. So there's really three points of Rabbi Tzvirish Kalashir's thinking. Uh, Crucial points. Number one, he believed that redemption, the geula, is not just from heaven. It needs human deeds as well. That was point number one, which we're going to return to. Number two... He believed that that the Jews should return. They should immigrate to the land of Israel. They should they should purchase land there. They would do the mitzvahs They would they would perform all the mitzvahs that are dependent on living in Israel and cultivating in land, having farmland, and to get the old yeshiv off of the Chalukah system and be able to be uh, financially stable and self self supporting, self sufficient, and uh, to work the land, farming and other things. The third point of his thinking, which was probably the most controversial and biggest novelty of all, was that he wanted to renew the bringing of Carbonis on the Temple Mount, on Harabais even before Mashiach comes, even before the Geula arrives, because he believed that it was not dependent on the Geula, but rather on, on Jewish control of the Temple Mount. This was... I wouldn't say he abandoned it ever, but he eventually toned it down because in his later years, because it did not generate much support, a lot of opposition from different quarters, um, different rabbinical, in Eastern Europe and in Israel itself, and in other places. And he, but he believed that if the Jews can, Jewish people can get control of harabais, then we can go ahead and start bringing karbanis. And he battled rabbinic opinion all over. There was a series of letters between him and his rebbe, Rebbe Kiva Eger, who eventually referred to the, the question to his son-in-law, the Qasem Seifer. So the Rubikiv and the Qasem Seifer are dealing with this question as, as if it's a, you know, he's presenting it to, to them as a relevant question. He believes that we can, you know, get control from the Ottoman or Muslim authorities and, uh, and, and be able to start bringing Karbanis. And, um, and, uh, in other words, it's in the 1830s, right? Rubikiv Eger and the Qasem Sefer passed away at the end of the decade. So this is right at the beginning, when he's still, you know, he's first starting out with promulgating this idea. Um, he's already discussing the practicalities of starting to bring karbanis. And Rabbi Kiva Eger and the Chassam Sefer bring up um, uh, objections by the fact that there's no big day kahuna for the kohenim to wear when they're bringing karbanis. And also the karbanis have to come from the machatzis shekel from the fund, from bringing that ever, or the Jews need a part in the carbon. And they deal with these halachic aspects and then the practical aspect of the fact that it's not in Jewish hands. It's in Muslim hands right now. And they, they theorize that perhaps if Jew, the Jewish people did get control of Harabais, then perhaps they can bring the carbon Pesach, but not other Karbanis. There's an extensive correspondence with, between them and other rabbinic leaders at the time, which is fascinating. That they that this is this becomes a part of the program that we're going to start bringing carbonis and that's going to be a stage in the geula in in the redemption. Now his messianism his messianist messianist ideas was that the that there's two stages. There's the first, like I said, his first stage is human deeds, and the second stage comes from heaven. So he's battling messianic ideas on two fronts. Traditional Judaism believed that redemption is only from heaven that we. Sit and wait back and wait for it to happen. And the new emancipation or reformist, or acculturation ideals and their beliefs was that redemption is completely man-made and it's here and now with emancipation. And Berlin is the new Zion. That was the belief in the emancipation world. So he went in the middle. His practical solution was go back to the land of Israel and the first stage is man-made and that also we can carry out Right now, at this point, now, um, like I said, he was influenced. It wasn't just about messianism; it was uh, it was influenced by nationalism as well. And in his 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 his, uh, his writings, which he wrote in many different platforms, he wrote in in the the, the Hebrew journals at the time, in Hamagid, in Halavonin, and others. And but he wrote um, pamphlets on the topic, and his most famous writing on that kind of summarized his views on the topic, which he put out much later in life, was a sefer, a, a small, short pamphlet called Derishas Zion. He starts off by saying that Zion has no, no one who's seeking it out, no one who's it, no one, no one is seeking out Zion. That's why he is writing this. And at one point in this sefer, he writes, Why should we be any different than the Poles, than the Hungarians, than the Italians, than the Greeks? and other nations of the world who are all in this struggle for self-determination and nationalism, and they're willing to give their lives for it. We should be the same. We should also try to, you know, have dedication to the nationalist ideals. So even, you know, he incorporates the influence of nationalism right into his, his writings there. And it was also, he was struggling to find the solution to solve the financial crisis of the old Yishuv by alleviating the strain on uh, them by helping them settle the land and develop the land. So he's very much from within the world of the old yeshiv. He's not coming from outside of it. And again, it's because of the time period he's living in. He's living in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, when that's it. The only thing that exists in the, in the land of Israel is the old yeshiv, and there's nothing else really on the horizon. So he becomes very active in writing letters and trying to meet up with Rothschilds and other Jewish leaders and rabbis, and um a, one of the one of the ones he corresponded with who was very opposed to the idea was erb Fall Hirsch, the legendary leader of frankfurt and german jury in a letter many years later very, years after the passing of of Tzirish kolosher a letter that erb shamshon Hirsch wrote to Yaakov lifshitz the famous uh, secretary of the medical khan inspector in kovna so Reb shamshon Hirsch describes there in that letter that erb kolosher spoke to him Many years earlier, he, he said he wrote to him several times, he even came and met with him in Frankfurt, and Rav Shamshin hirsch declares that he was very against the idea of this, that mass settlement in Eretz Yisrael is gonna bring the Ge'ula. And Kalischer said that, Rav, he said to Rev Hirsch, he said, you are preventing the Ge'ula from coming. And Hirsch, Rev Hirsch responded to him, what you believe is a great mitzvah, I think is no small sin. So we can never come to an agreement on this topic. And that's almost a direct quote because I used a free translation from the Hebrew letter. So that was that was Rubshamshanafal Hirsch's position, which of course we'll explore whenever we get around to speaking about Rubshamshana Fal Hirsch and his world, um which hopefully we'll get to one day as well. On the other hand, he did garner some rabbinical support, Rabbi o Gutmacher became a famous uh, supporter. Even a physical inspector seemed to have some expressed some sort of limited support for the idea, and a few others. Rothschild ignored him in 1836 when he wrote to him, but in 1839, Rev. Tirish Kalasher tried Montefiore, and Montefiore, who spent the next several decades of his life and all his uh, philanthropic uh, work, and his vocational you know, building up in, in Israel, and planting orchards, and building neighborhoods in Yerushalayim, most of, uh, Montefiore's activity was prime, was mainly due to the influence of Rav Serish Kalasher. So that's a huge direct influence on the settlement of Israel as all of Montefiore's work, which is, can't be uh, underestimated. And that was, uh, because of R- Rav Serish Kalasher was able to influence Montefiore to get involved. And Rav Hirsch R- Kalasher also prevailed for years, uh, on the Alliance organization, the Paris-based, uh, which was a secular organization and it was to help, it was a, 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 an organization, an important organization, a historic moment in 1860 when it was founded that saw the Jewish people as one unit that all Jews are responsible for each other and they're out to help all Jews around the world. So Rotary Scholarship tries to somewhat, I guess we would call it in a anachronistic uh, way to Zionize the Alliance, or to at least get them interested in Settling the land of Israel and he prevailed for years and, and finally was successful. And this ultimately led to the opening of the Mikve Yisrael agricultural school near Yafo in Israel in 1870. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, and when Carl Netter, who was the head of the, of the, uh, Mikvei school, he, you know, it's a secular school, but he actually invited um received scholarship to be the head of the school to 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 be the rabbinical excuse me the rabbinical head of the school and the area and to uh, you know make it conform to halachic uh, requirements of of uh, farming in israel and he was actually supposed to travel to israel and settle there um but eventually old age prevented him from doing so so in, in 1860 um, he's involved in an in initiative to build the Batemachse, the first major Jewish housing development within the Old City, which, which is still there till today. When you walk, you know, through the Jewish quarter, you see the whole Batemachse area. He raised money for it. The same year, ironically, was the f- first Montefiore homes were built outside the Old City, uh, walls, um, Mishkinot And the same year, which is also a coincidence, was the birth of Theodore Herzl, who would come onto the scene. Uh, in the same uh, topic uh, many years later. Um, that same year, in 1860, Rav Kalischer uh, called the first ever conference to seriously discuss with delegates who were invited how to implement the ideas of settling the land. And the following year, an organization was established in Frankfurt, Frank, the other Frankfurt, Frankfurt on the Oder, the Oder River, to realize that goal of settling the land. They called it Chevra Li Eretz It was an organization to promote the settlement of the land of Israel. And, uh, and and it kind of fell apart shortly afterwards. He tried raising money. He passes away in 1874. And unfortunately, in a, exactly a century later, in 1974, the communists destroyed the cemetery in Torin. So his kever was destroyed. But if we want to summarize his activities, he starts off in the 1830s. This is a half a century before the Chayvavay Tziyayin, the Lovers of Zion movement and the first Aliyah. This is 70 years before political Zionism starts. He's essentially, he's part of the world of the old Yishuv. And the messianic fervor and tension that exists, uh, that's expressed in his activities and writings, is also in the old Yishuv at the time, around the year 1840, because of all kinds of Kabbalistic reasons, the tough race year is considered a year of a lot of messianic fervor, both within the old Yeshiva and in other parts of the Jewish world. So he's operating in a different era. He's operating in an era before there's a mass movement, before there's Zionism, before there's there's political Zionism. His activities may have set things in motion, but it was so long before anything else substantial happened that we can call him perhaps one of the Mavasrates, proto Zionism, but not in any way part of the movement in his lifetime and he himself remains deeply entrenched in the traditional rabbinical world uh, but with a vision um, for what he wanted as a change in the Jewish world as far as settlement of the land of Israel was concerned. So this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, tours, trips, sponsorships, lectures. And you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.